Welcome back to The Producer Podcast. I'm your host, Micah Versman, and today we are concluding our series on film distribution as we focus on studio-level distribution by talking to Joshua Walsh. So without further ado, let's dive in and get started. Thank you for coming on the show today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So maybe to start, just kind of share a little bit about how you got started in the industry and how you wound up being a producer, because a lot of people don't gravitate towards that. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, I have a, an interesting story of um, how I kind of got into this business and how I continue to stay in this business. But I, um, I was always interested in filmmaking. Uh, as a kid, uh, actually made a little like animated short when I was a kid for a festival. And like, I was always interested in how movies were made. So I was, you know, back when people used to watch DVDs, I would be one of the <laughs> kids that watched all the behind the scenes and all the bonus material. And that was really like how I learned. Uh, I had uh, the opportunity to meet a pair of brothers, John and Andy Irwin, when I was 18 years old. And okay. I was just I was just starting to get into trying to figure out what I was going to do. I thought I'd maybe go to animation school. And I actually started an animation school, um, an animation school called Animation Mentor. And I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an animator. Uh, but I loved movie making. Uh, I had the opportunity to 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 work with them on a uh, 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 like a little TV series that they were doing, and I went and PA'd for them. Uh, it never really. I don't think it really aired anywhere, but they got like six episodes greenlit and they got to make them. So I was a PA on it. So I enjoyed my time with them. And then I got to participate with them again on a documentary. And it seemed that God just kept putting them in my life where uh, my parents were a part of a ministry and, and, and they were doing a doc for it called mysterious islands, which was about uh, mm -hmm. Charles Darwin's journey to the Galapagos islands in Ecuador. So I got to go on that and be kind of a PA because my parents were involved in the ministry. And so they just kind of were like, Hey, you seem to like to like work with us. You know, like we have a film coming up. Do you want to come uh, be a part of uh, the set? So I came and I just, honestly, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, and I, uh, I just wanted to serve and wanted to help and wanted to learn, which is still one of the key things that I, I tell uh, anybody that's kind of getting into the industry and just say, just find ways to be valuable. Um, so mm -hmm. I just, I, I kind of looked around and I didn't know what um, what to do. It seemed like everybody had jobs and people knew more than me and and the PA thing, uh, I was just trying to find value there other than like running and grabbing food and coffee and those kinds of things. Uh, and I noticed that, hey, it looks like they need uh, people uh, on set. They need like extras to, to be in their scenes. And every, I, heard, I overheard a conversation where they were talking about getting these cut out, um, cardboard cutouts for the background. And and when I started talking to everyone, it seemed that nobody wanted to do the job and it sounded like a terrible job to go get extras, especially volunteer extras uh, to be on set. And I just thought, hey, there's my in. I'll do, uh, I can do that. I can rally people and who doesn't want to be in a movie? This has got to be the easiest thing in the world, right? <laughs> so, and it kind of was, honestly, like I've not met a lot of people that haven't wanted to be in a movie. So I just started like calling people and, 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 before you know, I had this big scene in the movie where there was like this theater and they were panicking about how they were going to make it work. And we ended up, I ended up working and getting like 700, 800 people out to the scene. And they're all like amazed. And I just thought, I was like, I just really like 
told people at the movie and told, asked them if they wanted to be in it and they were into it. So I didn't feel like it was that big of a contribution, but because of that, they actually gave me a, a producer credit because it was a real indie film. And then I continued to do stuff like that for the rest of the shoot. And I just kind of walked away from it and thought, Hey, that was a fun experience. I'm just going to go home. And, uh, you know, a couple of years, a couple months later, uh, the director, John Irwin, um, called me up and he said, Hey, you seem to really like not to get people out and, and, and like the business. And as you seem to be into it, do you want to come work with me for a couple months promoting the movie that you worked on October baby? And I said, uh, I said, yeah, sure. That sounds fun. Like, so I was like, I was like 18, 19 years old at the time. So I didn't really have anything else going for me. So I, I went and, uh, and I never left. I honestly, <laughs> like, uh, I'm 30 years old now. So I, I, I just, to this day, maintain that attitude of how do I serve and how do I add value? Um, and mm -hmm. that has manifested itself in many ways over the last 11 years. Uh, that's how long I've worked with John and Andy, you know, it's manifests itself, you know, on, uh, the movie Woodlawn that we were filming at the time. I, 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 uh, the extras job never left me to this day. I can never escape it. Everybody, like every movie I've in some capacity, everyone's like, how do you get all these people, you know? Um, and you know what, instead of saying that's beneath me, I say, if that's what is serving the production, I'll help, you know, and that's mm -hmm. that attitude that I think a lot of young people need to have when they come into the space. So I, uh, I've always had that service attitude and uh, it's manifests itself in, in marketing. I've worked on, uh, I think now 11 feature films and, okay. and, you know, I, I've had a bunch of different roles, um, you know, and I think that's kind of the idea behind uh, a producer role. It can be an ambiguous title, right? You go and you watch the credits of a movie, there might be 15 producers. What does that mm -hmm. mean? You know, tip, you know, and I'm sure you get into that on your podcast and we can get into that more in a minute. But really, it's uh, I think it's more entrepreneurial thinking, you know, when you're, you're like, you really got to solve, like, if you like solving problems, a film set is a problem factory. And it's accelerated <laughs> because everything is like, it's like taking a whole company and saying, hey, we're going to jam that whole company into like six months, you know, or less. And, mm -hmm. you, and so there's so many problems that if you're someone that likes solving problems, it's just rampant. So I like solving problems. So for me, uh, that served me well in that you know so i'll always be looking for one of the things that i always approached is what does nobody else want to do you know and whatever so like because that's probably the area where i'm going to have an in so nobody wanted to do extras I, I thought that's where if i do that better than anybody else maybe someday someone will say hey i wonder if you could do something else better uh it's that whole biblical principle of faithful with a little you'll be faithful with a lot so um I, yeah i i've worked on the marketing of a ton of films so uh, that's always a component i've had the luxury that a lot of producers do to see a lot of the products i've worked on from concept to market that's a cool cycle some producers come on just for the production side and then they're gone and they move on and they're on to the next thing and there's nothing wrong with that some producers are more specialized in the finance side and they're more of an executive producer kind of role. I've got to wear a lot of different hats uh, throughout the years on all the different productions. So I've been a part of the financing side extensively. You know, that was something mm -hmm. that I found out early on was going to be a need, you know, that we had, um, you know, we had a need when we didn't have studio financing to raise money. So I said, okay, what does it take to raise money for a film? What kind of, what does the business side of that look like? What is the, you know, the financial side look like and who are the kinds of people and how does that work? And that was a journey. And I, and I got a ton of experience doing that. And, you know, I've been on, uh, I've now had the opportunity to uh, produce a documentary and uh, I've been a part of three 
what does it look like to produce a documentary? It's never, uh, I always kind of joke, I never have had enough time in one like kind of principle to become an expert in it because every time I like finish something, I'm like, oh, I finally like feel like I know what I'm doing there. I will get moved to do something else, <laughs> which is probably suits me. Um, but yeah, everybody's journey is a little different. I don't think there is a, a path necessarily that you say, hey, you start doing this and you're going to end up doing that ever in film, you know? Mm. So I feel like, uh, yeah, I, I'm still on that journey to see what kind of producer I am. And, um, you know, I, I love the business and I love the the mechanics of what it takes to make something work. And, and, and in film, it's kind of the producer job. Like it's the guy that's saying, all right, I'm going to figure out how to empower the creative and, and, and oversee the business and shepherd the marketing, you know, kind of see it all the way through. And um, yeah, so that's been my journey, a little unconventional. I, I, I kind of like it that way. I, I started with one company, two guys, and I've been with them for 11 years. Um, so I've had a little bit of an unconventional r- route in that I kind of rose, my tide kind of rose with the ships that I started with, you know, which was John and Andy mm-hmm. So I got to ride their wave uh, and learn and kind of grow through their system uh, of of filmmaking, which has been fun. And I'm starting to now work with a lot of other filmmakers. So I'm getting to learn kind of how other people do it, which is exciting too. Yeah, no, that's, that's cool that hearing your story and how that all came together, definitely different from some of the other producers I've, I've had on the show, but yeah, and different producers have different strengths, you know, it's, it's hard to think, you know, people ask me that, okay, so what does a producer do? You know? Uh, and it's like a little bit of everything. And sometimes it's different on each movie. You know, I've met producers that don't do anything on set, you know, <laughs> then I met producers that do everything, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, so there's typically a lead producer I've found on a project, you know, that is the, the guy, the end all be all, you know? Um, and then there's a lot of different kinds of producers that work around them, you know, uh, I've got to be that lead producer on some projects. Uh, and on a lot of them, I got to support the other producer. You know, I've worked very closely with a producer named Kevin Downs, who's produced like, I don't even know, like 50 movies or something like that. You know, okay. an expert, you know, in the producing side, he specializes more on the uh, the deals and the overall strategy for the set and kind of the leadership from a high level. And, uh, you know, he usually works pretty closely with a line producer, you know, that mm-hmm. will do the the nuts and bolts of the uh of the production um so you know but he has his hand in all of that and he's probably done that job in some capacity and could probably do it maybe not as well as a line producer but he's got to be there's got to be somebody where the buck stops on a movie set and typically that's the producer and 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 shared kind of with the director in a you know the the creative capacity a director and the producing and business capacity uh, a producer so yeah so I'm curious, like, what's your favorite area of producing? Because like you said, pro- producers do so much. Like, if, if you had your choice, what would you focus on? You know, that's a good question. I think I'm still figuring that out, you know, um, because I've had a lot of, I've, I've, I've operated in a lot of different roles. Um, I love products. Okay. You know, so to me, it's not necessarily about the mechanics of producing um, as much as it's, being able to see an idea from the idea stage all the way to this point where you're sitting in a movie theater and watching people watch it. You know, that 
I think is probably my favorite part is to shepherd something through from idea, from the idea stage from a piece of paper to finally in the marketplace. Um, you know, so I, I think that's, you know, I know some producers that just love production. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. love production. Um, I, I just love creation and I like to see, to see it through to, to market, you know, so yeah, shepherding of a project, you know, so how that will manifest over my life and into the next products I do um, will be interesting to see, but I absolutely love the process of, of having an idea or a dream and seeing that through uh, and how, or helping somebody with their dream and seeing it through to completion. So uh, that's probably a broader answer, <laughs> you know, um, but I, I do, I, I really just, I am about the product. I've always been a product guy. I couldn't, you know, uh, that's why for me, you know, a lot of my faith and my uh, calling and what I want to do in life are, are so tightly connected because it's just so hard to do this kind of content uh, mm-hmm. and to, uh, and to, to, to work in film and entertainment. For me, I'm so passionate about the product that I can't kind of, disconnect the two of them not for me as some people can and there's nothing wrong with that um but for me it i it, it's very much about the product you know so i guess that would be the answer i love to see great products get made and help in some way so i was fulfilled doing extras because i knew in some part my work contributed to the final picture uh, yeah. that's so cool about film man it's like there are things in life where people um you know, they, 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 they take credit, they can, they can take credit for it. And it's truly kind of all on them. Film is a hard one for any one person to take credit. And that's maybe mm-hmm. why I'm so much. It's, it's, it's crazy to me. I just finished a documentary project that's still in theaters right now called the Jesus music. Uh, and it's amazing to me how movies even get made because it's just this symphony of creativity and business all working together and the and it's kind of a chaos until the very last minute and then it's done and you kind of look at it and go oh it worked and people are laughing and and there's all these moments in between of like oh my gosh is this terrible is everyone gonna lose their money or is this even gonna work is the product gonna even work it's not funny it's not entertaining it's not interesting you know it's like oh these personalities are difficult and then at the end of it all you're sitting in a movie theater and no one sees all that they just see what's in front of them and it's done, you know, and on features, it's terrifying because in this moment, you know, like, okay, I got 30 days to each day matters, you know, so, yes. each, so for this one day, I'm working on something is going, I'm going to see this one day's worth of work a, a thousand times, and it's going to contribute to the overall feel and look of this movie. And if I'm just having a bad day, or I don't deliver on something, it could have these devastating long-term effects to the picture, or you can know that like, oh, it could have been better, you know? So I have this all like kind of all or nothing approach to it. Cause I'm like, ah. John Rowan used to say, pain is temporary, film is forever. And it's kind of true when you're working on a film, <laughs> ah, you know, you want to get it right. So uh, that's why it's, yeah, it's just, it's a very, it's a very interesting process and it's amazing any movies actually turn out. <laughs> yes, that is so true. So, um, cause you, I, you mentioned how like you started on October baby and some of those that weren't really, that were still more independently 
produced and distributed. Um, so what was that kind of the change like when you went from working on those to now there's a studio? You know, I've gone back and forth. I, I've had the luxury of, of kind of a, a combinations of all of them, you know, okay. which is really good, well-rounded education for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, so I'll run you through my film chron- chronologically, my film <laughs> history here. I did, uh, so I made a movie call, I worked on a movie called October, maybe I was co-producer on that. Uh, then I got to do um, a movie called Mom's Night Out. So uh, October Baby was fully financed by uh, private equity uh, and uh, and independently released. So we we had a distribution deal. So it, for anybody that isn't as familiar with how these things kind of work, um, you know, when you independently finance a film, you still have to get obviously distribution for it. So you kind of pay for this thing, you know, so if you, you know, for, back in the day for October, maybe I think it was an $800,000 production budget, which is like, I don't even understand how we did that today. Um, you know, so uh, we, we uh, shot that movie for 800 grand and then we are sitting on this thing, right? We have this product, we, know, we don't know anybody in Hollywood. And then, you know, you shop it, which is this, you know, you go around town and you try to sell it. And you try to, you get people and have an in somewhere and they go, yeah, I know this guy and he can help get in here. And you try to take your movie around and you sell it. And, and, and we didn't sell it, <laughs> you know? And so you can also do um, kind of a, a pay to play deal where you basically, okay. you do a deal like, which is essentially just a services deal with these distributors that are out there. Uh, some of them are really good, like a roadside. And then some of them aren't so good, you know, and um you know, they they kind of book the theaters for you and they they help you kind of get into those places. And for that, you have to kind of give them an upfront fee. A lot of times you got to do the marketing yourself. And so for October Baby, we it was very unique. We got to um, work with the teams that had done a lot of the Sony Affirm films. So we essentially just kind of rented their marketing team and put it on ours and then did a services deal with Samuel Goldwyn, which is the distributor. And because of the, the team that we were using, uh, we also got Provident Films, which is a great group uh, mm-hmm. to come on board and kind of help shepherd it. There was a guy at the time, Ben Howard, that helped us really kind of oversee that. So that was our first deal ever. And it was like, we were learning it as we went along and we made mistakes. And funny enough, the movie, uh, it did well. It broke even, it's been profitable um, or at least close to profitable. It wasn't a slam hit or anything like that, but it was a solid you know, little release. It, cracked the top 10 movies in America uh, at the time, Hunger Games, which is a Lionsgate film. And now we're with Lionsgate came out that weekend. So we got to kind of be alternative programming to them. So they have a big release that everybody's scared to release at the same time. So we released in that, 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 that kind of same window to kind of mm-hmm. take the business of people that didn't want to go see Hunger Games and didn't have anything else to watch, <laughs> which is a strategy theatrically. Um, so we did that. And so I got to learn like all, all this entrepreneurial side of filmmaking. And then our very next picture was a movie called Mom's Night Out, which was fully financed by uh, Sony uh, through their uh, through their faith label, Affirm, uh, mm-hmm. which is shepherded by a guy named Rich Peluso. Uh, and he had I think he had saw uh, had saw October Baby and thought it was well done, you know, and then um someone had brought the script for mom's side out to us and, and then John rewrote it and, and Sony was interested. And so they greenlit it. And so they paid for the script and the production and the marketing. And that was a fully financed studio picture, you know, uh, which was interesting. I learned a lot about how, 
you know, intense legal can be on uh, that because they're watching out for themselves a little bit more than sometimes when you're just kind of shooting from the hip and being independent, you know, uh, yes. you know, a lot about, you know, you know, there was a lot more uh, kind of oversight on the production side of everything, you know, to make sure that we didn't screw anything up. Uh, but, you know, we actually did a great job on it. And we had a, a line producer that was pretty experienced named Daryl Lefevre, who came in and helped us. And he was been in the industry for a long time. He's a believer. He's really like was passionate about what we wanted to do. And he wanted to kind of jump from the studio accounting, uh, production accounting side to more line producing. And he made a great jump and he's produced now probably like 30 films. Uh, so he really helped us in that, in that transition. But I remember the kind of anxiety of like, Oh, now the, like there's real Hollywood people around and you know, it's, it's, you shouldn't be so nervous about that stuff. I, I was telling someone the other day, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, in my opinion, it's all about connecting to an audience. You know, it's about creating compelling stories through film that is done in a professional way and connecting with an audience. And if you can do that, the rest kind of figures itself out, you know? So yeah. it's not like at some point you're going to get like an award for being able to work with studios and you haven't made it, you know, at this point, if you've done a studio picture, I mean, you're just, you know, you're just as successful. You know, what made us successful was a movie called I Can Only Imagine, which was independently produced and independently released, essentially. Okay. You know, we did a distribution deal with Roadside, and because of that, Lionsgate was involved. But I think they would be the first to tell you they didn't have too much to do with the the release of it. You know, really, Roadside was the was leading the charge, which you know works with independent producers. So, and it was it was it was telling for me that moment because it was like, you know. I don't know what it is about maybe because we all work in film we're all waiting for like our, our our hero's journey where Gandalf comes and tells us that we're the one you know or Obi-Wan Kenobi and and, and it, it's not really like that it's uh in the real experience of I think working in entertainment film because you might work just as hard on one movie and it doesn't work and then work less as you know on another and that one works it's and then everybody wants to call you and talk to you and then you're somebody and you're something and then you know, maybe a couple of years later, you're not, <laughs> you know, it's like, so you realize like, you know, there's no moment where you arrive, you know, at the other side of, in my opinion, on the other side of the artist love when I say this, but this is what producers podcast, you know, on the other side of the table, when you get past all the, you know, oh, wow, we're at Lionsgate or at Sony or we're, you know, this is so crazy. We're at a real big studio and there's studio people and I'm a fraud and all that crap. Like you get to the other side of it and you realize they're a company who are in the business of selling product, you know, mm -hmm. movie tickets, streaming, you know, uh, DVDs, they, it, they want to move a lot of product and, and it's a very hard product to make. So that's why there's not a lot of people that get to do it. It's very risky. And it, it, you know, so there's not a lot of openings, you know, that's why it's so hard to break into this industry, but the other side of it, you know, it's, they, they, they're a business, you know, so if you're able to move a lot of product, and you can actually get people out to your stuff, then great, you made it. <laughs> you know, so it's not like this moment, you know. So I think that can sometimes sound like negative, but it's not. It actually helps you have a little perspective. It's like, you know what? Just do great work, do the work God has called you to do. Um, do it onto the Lord so it's excellent. Uh, and then be shrewd, try to be shrewd and try to be wise and try to understand audiences and try to understand. Um, and try to make the best story you can. It all comes back to story, all of it. That's why our name of our company is Kingdom Story Company, because at the end of the day, it's all about story. 
Because you can spend $100 million on a movie and it has a lame story and audiences hate it and it fails. So it doesn't, it's not, and, or you could spend $7 million like we did on Imagine. And it's an amazing story and it connects with an audience and is the number one independent film of 2018 and one of the highest grossing, you know, uh, indies, it, highest grossing independent film of 2018. And a, one of the top 10, you know, movies that when it came out and probably one of the top 100 grossing films of that year. Um, that, it, you know, and then there's somebody else that probably spent 50 million bucks and knows everybody and has the right actors and it failed. I love products like The Chosen that's happening right now because it's just turning everybody's on the on, like head because it's brilliant. Now there's now in that scenario, they don't even have a distributor. They're just going straight to an audience and the audience loves it. You know, so that's the purest form of it right there. You can see like, it's just about creating compelling content uh, with a good story and, and figuring out how to connect to an audience. And then you have, you're successful. <laughs> so yes, it's a really rat long roundabout way to say there was a lot, there's a lot of learning curves when you start working with a studio and with a bigger organization, for sure. Uh, you mm-hmm. learn how to do things versus independent. Um, but at the end of the other day, it's just about kind of doing the same thing, maybe a little bit more professionally um, and with a little bit more accountability. And then eventually when you get through it, you kind of understand, okay, this is how you do it, you know? And it's, so for us, yeah, our first year was all these like, how does this actually really happen? How do you do, you know, like, how does the studio do this? And, you know, and, you know, and so that, that was a learning curve that now I look back on, I go, I don't know why I was so nervous. This is just how studios operate in some ways, you know, at the other side of, you know, our, our production is someone who's in charge of physical production, who's worked on productions himself and is looking out for the studio to make sure that we actually deliver on what we say. And on the other side of the creative side of the studio, you know, there's somebody that's trying to make sure that the product is as creative as it can be and is trying to serve you to do that. And so, yeah, it's a funny world of making movies, but uh, I do feel blessed to have worked on both. Uh, And I could go on for hours telling you the differences between both and the pros and cons. I don't think there really is a, a, um, a better you know, one, there's guys mm-hmm. that, that prefer to be independent and they work well, uh, and they make it work and there's some blessings to the studio, you know, um, both on the distribution and the production side. There's a, there, so it's, it's kind of, uh, all over the place with that. Uh, but it has been neat to learn, uh, from both. I bet. So I was, one thing I was wondering, cause I was at your class that you did at CWBFF oh, cool. this year. Oh, cool. Uh, That's awesome. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I felt like and, I was like talking a million miles an hour. I do that. <laughs> and uh, I, I might have overloaded everyone there, but <laughs> maybe a little bit, but yeah, I enjoyed it. That's awesome. Um, but when you were teaching the class, like you did a really good job of kind of explaining, I guess I would kind of call it the pay out funnel. Yes. Um, when when film films get released, and I was wondering if you could maybe yeah, kind of briefly go over that. Yeah, kind of like back to what I was saying earlier. Um, one of the things that I've always enjoyed is, is figuring out how to serve the production um, and serve people. So when I first came into film, I was amazed to find out that there's so much ambiguity behind how the business operates. Like what other business is it hard to find out how the business even operates? Uh, even to this day, it's a challenge at times. Um, it's a very tricky 
but it's not rocket science. We're, you know, we're a bunch of filmmakers. They're not the most brilliant guys uh, in the world. So, um, you know, the class I taught that you were referring to uh, was of a 101 for film economics, right? Which is to explain kind of how do how does the business work for films and how do you make money uh, on a film and where does that money come from? So in the class, I kind of talked about this, this concept that uh, called the 50-50 uh, net, which was kind of how you raise money in film, which is, you know, you, you sell off, you create an LLC, you sell off half of that LLC or grant a profits interest of, of half of it uh, to yourself as the producers. And then you sell off uh, the other half to uh, investors. Uh, and then there's this kind of classic model uh, that was made, it is made popular in a lot of uh, kind of film economics books and classes. And it's kind of the industry norm where, you know, whoever pays for it and puts up the money for the, what we call the equity or the production financing, they get their money back first, you know? So it's just this idea like, Hey, they put up all the risk, they get the money back first after they get their money back. Uh, then you split it down the middle. You know, that's what's called the 50-50 net, you know, and sometimes mm. you give them a bump of some kind, like, hey, I'm going to come to you, Mike, and I'm going to say, hey, I want you to invest in my movie. Let's call it, you know, $1,000, you know, and I, I say for that, you know, I'm going to put this movie in, maybe I say my plan is to put it on YouTube and make ads or whatever, you know, to make it back since yeah. it's a small scale movie. Uh you know, I'll give you uh, 10% on that. So when you, when like, you know, for, so I put it on YouTube, it makes lots of ad money. I pay you the first thousand bucks and then I pay you an extra hundred. And I say, hey, from this point on, we're just going to split it down the middle. We both own this thing because you put up all the money and I did all the work, right? Mm-hmm. That simple idea scaled infinitely, you know, is like kind of the idea of how production works. Uh, with the... Um, with the exception of the, this idea that a lot of guys that kind of go raise money miss out on and a lot of investors don't understand, uh, which is a big part of uh, what I try to educate both the investment side and the producer sides on. So, you know, I came to you and I said, I wanted to have you uh, put up this money to make my $1,000 YouTube video. And again, I'm using this in small numbers and kind of in a way that people can understand because it gets more complex as you spread out. Yeah, you know, you give me thousand dollars, and I make the thing, and I and I I put it up on YouTube, and I realize, you know what? Dang it! I need to advertise this to actually start to get the the, the flywheel turning, right? In the film business, that's called P and A, so it stands for prints and advertising. It used to be for the the cost of actually the the the, the creation of the prints. Now we have something called DCPs, which are digital hard drives that go out. But it used to be the idea of like, hey, it costs to make film reels and it costs to make billboards, right? In the 20s or wherever they advertise, you know, wherever they came up with this term. Um, so, so that advertising dollars, typically, you know, you at this point have paid, you know, to make my $1,000 video and I'm not going to want to tap the well too many times. So either I go to a studio and I say, hey, can you give me another $1,000 to advertise this? Or let's say 500 bucks to advertise it. Um, or I go to individuals and I ask for it. And I say, listen, I already sold off all the equity. So there's no equity position left uh, in this thing because that's what it took to make the movie. Uh, and this is advertising. So it's like debt, it's short term. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's gonna be spent in the span of six months. So it's the smartest thing to do is take it on as debt. So what a lot of guys in the film space don't under, uh, like investment, first time film investors don't understand is about that. You know, they don't think about the fact that, hey, after you make a thing, you got to pay for it to market it and get it out there. Sometimes you got to pay twice, you know, sometimes more than that, you know, the cost of the production. 
Um, I'm trying to remember the industry standard for it. It's like, you know, it, it, it varies, you know, with the cost of your production, you know, so uh, smaller films, the multiple is higher of how much the advertising will be. And on bigger films, it might be, you know, uh, one times it, you know, or two times it. But I think it's roughly like twice the amount of your production budget. So this idea of advertising is what a lot of people don't understand that comes in later. It's what they call last in, first out. So that's the part that a lot of equity investors don't realize. So you'll, you'll pay for this asset and then it will make uh, a certain amount of money. So like, you know, you paid that thousand dollars for this movie. I spent 500, you know, and you hear it made a thousand dollars yet you only get 500 and you go, Oh, what's going on? You know? <laughs> so you just have to understand how the windows break down. So in the film world, you know, if you, when you make a independent film, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to have to advertise it. It's going to cost a lot of money. You know, typically, you know, uh, they say the rule of thumb is about a thousand dollars per screen, you know? So okay. think about this. If you're releasing even a limited release on 300 screens, that's $300,000 just to be on those 300 screens. And then you haven't really advertised anything. That's just the cost to be in the theater. You know, you might want to spend, you know, uh, you know, I've heard things like you want to spend like 10,000 per location, but you can see where this money could start getting crazy. You know, yes. uh, October Baby, we spent uh, just under a million dollars to make the film. And I think we were about $4 million to advertise the film or just under that. Um, so you see the multiple there, you know, or a movie like Mom's Side Out. I, you know, I don't have the exact thing it's been a while, but I think that was like a three or $4 million production. And we probably spent eight advertising it. So twice the amount of the production. But so you see, as you scale up, you know, the amount of that, it, it, it the multiple kind of lowers. Um, mm-hmm. But um you know, so you, you have to be careful about is how this pl- plays out practically. If you're an independent producer and you raise a million dollars to go make your first indie, you might have to spend another $2 million that's debt. And that's in first position of, in front of your investors, equity return. Now it's debt. So they don't have long-term, you know, thing, but what if your movie doesn't make a lot of money? Now your equity guys might never see the money. And that's why, that's what I kind of did in my my economics class. There's some great books I would recommend highly, but there's okay. a book. Um, from real, you know, like a film reel to deal. It's one of my favorite books. I've given out probably 100, 200 of them. Uh, it breaks it down. It's a little dated now because it came out, you know, before the digital world took off and, and streaming and everything. But it, it it very simply breaks down how to do an independent financing. And that it just explains that idea. Like, hey, raise the money, sell off, off half the company as the producers and the creatives hold out the other half. Let those guys get their money back first with a premium. Uh, and then split 50-50. Inform them about the fact that there's going to be debt that's brought on later because they won't like that, <laughs> you know, if you don't. Because um, it will, you know, in a sense, it dilutes them. But it has to happen. It's part of the, how it works. That's why you give them 50-50 and they get first position. You know, so that's that that that's a nutshell how it works. And then how it breaks out, I think I explained in my class that, you know, in film, there are these windows. And these windows... We call them windows, you know, and it's, and very uh, simply put, those are just the exclusive kind of uh, time spans that you give different uh, uh, platforms. So mm-hmm. when you you know traditionally you came out theatrically, that they call it the theatrical window. So that's in theaters. So that would be the first window, and there was typically like you know anything from I think ninety plus days from the amount of time that you come out of theaters till when you can do the next window, which would be home entertainment, which would be when you release the DVD or the VHS back in the day. Um, Now it's when you release it digitally as well, like uh, on Amazon and iTunes and stuff. 
And then historically, the next window after that would be some sort of television window, right? So you go from, you know, in the 2000s, you go from theaters to DVD to television uh, and then to later on to like even a basic television. Um, sometimes you'd have a premium television like an HBO or something. So those windows are all valuable and it's all how you recoup how much it costs to make the movie. So rarely do you recoup in theaters unless you have a very successful movie. So when you're doing the math for your movies, you might go, okay, we're going to retain 40% of our theatricals. So if the movie makes a million dollars, we might get $400,000 back, right? I'm probably mm -hmm. lost. You're, all your podcasters have moved on to something more interesting. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you, re when you retain that, that, you know, you might've spent, uh, you know, a uh, million dollars on the movie and a million dollars advertising. So now you only have 400,000. So how do you recoup, right? So how you recoup is, you know, you, uh, you get the, how loud you, how much noise and how successful you are in theaters is also the biggest advertisement for what we call the downstream revenue for a okay. film. You know, if you're, you, you make a bunch of noise and you do well theatrically, then that's going to make your DVD do more. And it's going to, uh, you know, DVDs are kind of going away. But um, historically, they were great. <laughs> um, but, you know, so there's a lot there. I could probably talk for hours. I would bore all your people. But th there's all these levers now on how that works because DVD windows is, is quickly uh, evaporating uh, at a staggering level, right? Um, now there's other windows that are, are compensating for that, mainly the streaming window, you know, mm -hmm. so that's become a big thing. And then during COVID, there was this other window that was kind of added. Uh, they called it the PVOD window because there's all these abbreviations for things. So I'm just like fire hosing your podcast, just like I did that talk. <laughs> um, there's all these, these uh, uh, abbreviations, but they're all just window, different windows that you can release. So simply put, you know, if you're a consumer of films, you know that when uh, sometimes you'll see a movie available on iTunes or Amazon prior to being able to uh, rent it, uh, prior to being, um, during COVID, there was a window where you could basically watch a movie for the cost, like you could rent it, but it was about the cost it would, it would normally cost to buy the movie. It was like 20 bucks. They called yeah. that a premium rental. And it was this window kind of between theaters or even skipping theaters and between the time that you could rent it, right? Because if you can rent a movie for five bucks, you're probably going to do that, right? And not buy it digitally. So they were trying to kind of make more money in that window to compensate for the lack of theatrical. But historically, your windows are theatrical when you're in theaters, home entertainment when it's on DVD, uh, or when you can digitally buy it on Amazon and iTunes, and you can digitally rent it on iTunes and Amazon, and you can and you can rent it physically from Redbox. All those are kind of that home entertainment window that kind of hit usually around the same time. Uh, and then either you go to a premium cable deal with like an HBO or something, or you go to streaming. That's how it's working now, um, with the exception of that PVOD thing I, I mentioned. So uh, that, those are kind of the windows where you make money from. And then uh, on television you know, and, and catalog content, you know, kind of forever, the movie will kind of trickle in revenue. So that was a lot of information very quickly. So <laughs> uh, you did a good job because, yeah, it is a, a whole it's lot. A lot. It's a lot. You know, if I could draw it out for you, it wouldn't be that. It's not that hard, really. I mean, and listen, you st I'm still learning things today about how some windows work and 
that's just what you're gonna have to if you're watching this pod listening to this podcast and you're going god how am i ever gonna learn all this crap it's really not that hard it's it you'll just it, it's really not that hard it's really just the art form the hardest part of film is not figuring out all that necessarily it's it's the art form of releasing and how to release and how much to spend and how it will affect those windows and honestly just getting data because mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll drop another book bomb on you um there's a book called um to pixar and beyond which is one okay. of my favorite books and if you're a producer that's just trying to figure out the business side it's a great resource because it's it was written by the cfo of pixar and he was hired by Steve Jobs to come in and try to figure out this, this entrepreneurial business that, that Steve Jobs owned called Pixar. And it's all his frustrations of trying to understand how the stinking film business worked. And him just kind of vending going, I don't understand why this business, like these companies won't share their pro formas with me and won't even tell me how this money is made. Why are the secrecy? That's Hollywood. You know, the formulas, the projections, how something makes money. It's coveted stuff. It's like nobody shares like how like I like like I've like I've gotten recently just because we're, we work very closely with Lionsgate, you know, sometimes they'll help us try to model out how something will do. But never before have I gotten a real model. Like I remember trying to like figure out what how to tell an investor how he's going to make his money back. It's like, you know, th- these guys are just normal corporate guys going, hey, give me a pro format. And we're going, yeah, well, the thing is really kind of almost impossible to do a pro format for you <laughs> and they're like it's impossible to do a pro format and we're going yeah see the thing is you know nobody shares the data so we have no idea <laughs> you know and so that is it's it's kind of hilarious um and that's what they talk about in that book and it's a good lesson for anybody who's going to get into the business side to kind of understand you know there is a lot of secrecy behind how to project out revenue which makes it very hard when you're raising money independently so mm-hmm. I bet. No, I'll definitely add that one to my oh, it's good. ever ever growing list of books. Oh, and I'll have a few more probably before the end of the podcast. So <laughs> sounds good. Um, so I did want to ask because you you know we're bringing you brought in and mentioned like streaming platforms and all that. Yes. Like, yeah. what advice do you have to keep up with all the changes oh, <laughs> that are happening? I, don't know. I could use some advice myself. Um, I. You know, I read a lot of like, I'll I'll keep up to date with industry uh, stuff, you know, like through like Variety or Deadline or Hollywood Reporter. You know, I don't read it obsessively, um, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I would say also just talking to people that are working in the business, you know, um, it's an interesting time. It's changing so quickly. It's really hard to keep up with. Um, You know, there's a lot, I'll say this the demand for content is going to continue to grow. Okay. You know, there's so many different uh, competitors in town. So you have Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Disney plus, uh, I mean, the list goes on. Um, And there, you know, the demand, you know, and, and so they're all fighting over the same kind of group of, you know, you know, they're fighting over all these consumers. So they want to figure out how to attract them over. So that's good news for content creators, you know, how the business uh, works on their side. I would love to see more, um, and everyone would, all the filmmakers especially, would love to see more openness to sharing the data, you know, so because when we release a movie in theaters, we know how well it does and how many people watch it and how many tickets are sold that day, you know, like at the hourly, you know, from Rentrack. And then, mm-hmm. you know, when you, to, when you go to home entertainment, Walmart will give you updates on how many DVD units sold. And, and you know, when you, you do an electronic 
purchase, you know, through Amazon or iTunes, you know how many people uh, are buy the thing. You don't get a lot of data from these streamers. You know, they don't tell you how many people watch your movie. You know, sometimes these will be like leaks, you know, like that, what just happened with, uh, like I think a week ago, some employee of Netflix released uh, a report on how Squid Games or whatever that show is like, had like a billion views or something or added a billion dollars to the bottom line of, of Netflix because it's had like hundreds of millions of views. It's crazy, you know, but we don't, you know, it, so that's interesting. I think as the competition begins to fear, like build over the years and there's more streamers out there, I think it's going to force probably those streamers to have some accountability. Um, mm -hmm. So that would be interesting to see uh, how to keep up with how it's, uh, it's, uh, it's changing and growing. I would say just, you know, read industry reports because they, they'll, you know, those changes will be cited and then talk to other producers who are out there uh, selling it. I'm still learning about how the streaming world works. You know, it's new to me too. Uh, I haven't done a, I haven't done a lot of streaming deals, if any, uh, directly. So, but I have friends that have, so it's been interesting to learn from them. That's probably the best way is just to make friends with someone who's done a streaming deal, you know, to understand how yeah. that works. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of how the streaming deals work is it, there's like buyouts, you know, there's licensing okay. and there's, I'm, I'm pretty sure Netflix from what I've been told prefers buyouts. So they'll, they'll just purchase your piece of content outright and then they own it, you know, which is different than licensing where they have a, they have the right to it for a certain amount of time, you know, um, uh, but they do do licensing deals as well. But I think Netflix, especially for originals, prefer like a buyout plus. So, uh, you know, let's say you have a show you come up with, they'll say, okay, this is how much the show is going to cost to make. Uh, you cut yourself in as a producer and then we'll pay you the cost of, you know, each episode. So let's say your each episode's a million dollars and you get six episodes. They'll pay, they'll, they'll pay for the budget of $6 million to go make it. And then when you deliver it, they might say, you know, plus, you know, 10% on each episode. So you make, you know, a hundred thousand dollars an episode or whatever. Um, so it's interesting how that works. That's different. So you can, you know how much it costs, but you also, if your thing becomes squid games or, the most popular thing on Netflix, uh, you're not going to see the upside on that, uh, on the, on the stuff that you've already sold. Now, if they want a season two and you didn't, you know, uh, do a two season contract or something now, now you're popular. Now you can renegotiate or try to get a higher rate, but that's what's interesting about, uh, the world of streaming. You know, the guys that made Tiger King, you know, I'm sure they got paid decent money for that series, but that series went on to become, the world's most popular thing for you know a couple of months and it's not like they made any more money because of it which is mm -hmm. a different interesting world of how streaming works now yeah. they can leverage that success to go back to netflix and 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 get paid more the next time and now they're really you know valuable uh but it's just interesting you know i think there's a lot of challenges and uh but there's also upside to that too uh and wait and, and there's opportunity uh in all of that uh, but yeah, streaming is changing the game because one of our major windows, well, over the last two years, so much is changing so rapidly that the smartest people in this business are trying to keep up. Uh, with, with, because of the pandemic with theaters being shut down, it's severely changing the business model because the way the film economics currently is built, um, it, it depends highly on the theatrical window. You know, yeah. and theatrical window being gone, that's what you saw this interesting shift in, uh, in how, uh, how we're, how everything's working. 
You know, so it, there are people that will tell you that the theatrical business is entirely dead and it's gone and it's a dinosaur and it's going to be gone and like the DVD. And it, I don't believe that. I do think it's probably changed. <laughs> the most significant change um, is the amount of time between the theatrical release and home entertainment. It used to be, traditionally be about a 90 day window. Uh, that's changing. You're seeing 50 day windows. You're seeing less. You're seeing same day releases with like HBO and uh, HBO Max and, and releases. You're seeing a lot of that changing. So there's disruption there. What and how it will finally shake out, it's anyone's guess. You know, um, so I don't think it's entirely gone. I think everybody during 2020, all the different distributors and organizations panicked and there was this like, you know, uh, surge of streamers, you know, and everybody who had a streamer became very valuable. It'd be interesting to see right. how that, you know, um, it's definitely changing. Consumer behaviors has changed a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that eventually uh, pans out. For sure. It's, a, it's an interesting business. Film and entertainment is the, it's constantly changing, you know, uh, in different ways and some ways very slowly and other ways very quickly. And uh, it's a lot to keep up with, but it's fun. It's a good challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is for sure. It's always something new to yes. play around with. Yes, absolutely. All right. So I have a few kind of wrap up questions. Do it. Do here it. I'm not logging too long. Uh, so I guess my first one would be, what's like one thing, you know, now about distribution, you wish you would have known back when you were first distributing a project? Oh, that's a good, good question. Cause you know, distribution is really half the battle, you know, making the movies one half the battle, figuring out how to release it is the other. Um, Such a good question. I don't know there's so much. <laughs> you, you stop. Um, I just got through a theatrical release, and I'm I'm asking myself a lot of questions right now. You know, I it's so yeah. It's, I I don't know. You know, I, I you know there's some questions I wish there's some things that I wish I would have known three weeks ago. <laughs> you know, um, one of the things that I think is it's very hard. You know, how we think consumers get information, how they interact with it, you know, in our minds is a lot simpler sometimes than the way it is in reality. You know, so, you know, what you spend your money on and who, you know, uh, makes noise and who tweets about your film could be very significant or could could end up not being significant at all. And I think one of the things that I really tend to believe is that without an ad buy that is substantial, um, or at least not, you know, uh, I I guess what I wish I knew now, uh, then that I know now is that you really need a substantial ad buy on television and uh, to support your release and without it, it's very hard to make enough noise and it for be, to be in enough places uh, for people to really start talking about it and get out. You know, and I think okay. we made that mistake on Woodlawn. Um, I don't think we had enough of a robust ad buy, uh, television ad buy. Um, I also wish that, I guess that'd be, that would be thing one. Thing two would be you really need to spend 
at least one times the amount of your product on advertising, but probably twice the amount. You never want that to get lopsided. You never mm -hmm. want to spend more money making the product than you do marketing the product. That can be a big mistake. So, you know, the, the idea of, uh, of really making sure that you have an ad buy so it's in enough places and then the, 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 the ratio of how much it costs to make the thing versus how much you market it needs to at least be, you know, one or two times the amount of the, of the cost of the product itself. You know, those would be two lessons. There's a lot of lessons, you know, timing you can't control. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, you can try to control it. Good luck. Uh, that's what I learned. It's and like, and so much of a release's success is due to timing. You know, uh, we just released a movie called Jesus Music. It was a documentary. Uh, in some ways, you know, it did really well. And I'm so happy for how well it did. I think it would have done three times, five, four times the amount of, of business it did during pre-pandemic era. Mm -hmm. But we're in a time now where people aren't going to the movie theaters unless it's something that's really captivating, at least in this season. I think that might change in the, in the coming months. Uh, that feels like something they would have to go to theaters to enjoy. And documentaries are right now a product that people can enjoy at home. And it seems to be the, the preferred uh, kind of uh, thing to go to. That's a lesson learned. Um, you know, when we came out with Imagine, it was perfect timing. It, people really like it felt like the like that year you saw a lot of hopeful releases coming out that like and things that were optimistic and and it was it it, it hit you know god's not dead uh when it came out which was another independent kind of hit that came out the timing around that was so interesting what the song and the political climate so much of that um is uh is due to timing and that's the one thing you really almost can't control Okay. Fascinating. So yeah. there's, there's an element of film that if you need to control things, probably not the right business for you. <laughs> you know, it seems to be a business of making the best of the kind of cards you are dealt each mm -hmm. day on set, uh, the season you release. Uh, you know, it's it, it really is a roll with the punches kind of business and then be strategic as you can, as much as you can, you know, in an ever-changing you know, uh, landscape and in, in a very uh, interesting world of, of releasing things. It's just, it's just so funny. You got to make, you got to figure out how to, to make so much noise with the right people to get them out. That's a hard thing to control, you know, and sometimes you can work your butt off and you don't see the results. And sometimes it just works. <laughs> yeah. I believe that's God's timing. Some people tell you it's luck, you know, um, but that's, there's definitely an element in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's, I think it was Tipping Point. He talks, he did a whole like chapter on, on luck and how the, the amount it plays in, um, in the success of some businesses versus others. And it, it is kind of though the, what people do with it, you know, it makes the difference, you know, so that when you have good time, you know, you'll have good seasons for things, you'll have lucky breaks and then, but you still have to work just as hard, even if you don't have that. And, and it might come at the last minute, it might come before, you know, so it's just, Timing is, everybody will tell you that timing is so important for the release of a film. That is for sure. So uh, my next question was, what have you learned about networking and building relationships in the industry? Well, it's everything. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think it's, it's so important. It's one of those cliches that's just true. 
you know. Uh, the best the thing though, the best version of that to be is someone that knows how to connect with people, but then can deliver. You know, you might, I've met great networkers who can't deliver and ultimately mm -hmm. they become not so good networkers. I remember like, there's a, there's a lot of characters in film and that will tell you about everybody they know. You know, that's a, that's a cliche, little name drop. Uh, and I remember being so impressed. <laughs> uh, I'm less impressed now about who someone knows uh, and I'm more impressed with people that have good relationships because they, they over time have delivered and they, mm -hmm. and they have built equity in those relationships. I'm more impressed by that. You know, I'm more impressed by someone who's worked with the same investor for five or 10 years than I am someone who's always good at raising money. You know, I'm more impressed with someone who's worked longer with the studio than someone who's bumped, or jumped, jumped around to a bunch of different people or had a bunch of different gigs, you know? So, but I would say that you cannot underestimate how important that is. It's everything. You know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me getting connected to John Irwin, you know, uh, and Andy Irwin, uh, and and the the how important that relationship is. I think if you have integrity, uh, is so key, you know, uh, to building long term relationships. But that's another talk for another time. The importance of relationships is so important. I would say it's it's you know it's there are people that have skill but are terrible at connecting with people, uh, and they are not successful. Uh, and there are people that are better connectors and don't have as much skill and they're more su successful. So I would say the best thing is to be really good at what you do and work really hard at being uh, relational because it's a relational business. So absolutely. It's super important. Yes, that's, that's for sure. I, I definitely have a few of those relationships that have definitely paid off over the years. So then my final question is, what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone who's just getting started like on the path to being a producer? Yeah, it's a great, that's a great question. Um, I'd say um, learn to serve well. You know, I think it's so underestimated. You know, there's so much of an attitude of coming into film and saying, you know, I'm going to be this, this, I'm important. This is what I have to offer. This is all this stuff. And it's like, you know what? I think that the, the most successful people I know learned how to serve better, you know, and they certainly learned how to serve the production. They learned how to serve the creatives. They learned how to serve the audience, you know, ultimately that's what, it, that's, what's going to help you excel. I remember, and I'll leave you with this thought. When I started out with John and Andy Irwin, when I was 19, I wrote, it, I wrote it down because I, and I don't know why I had this insight, but I just, I felt like this is what I needed to focus on. I wrote down, I'm going to focus on three things over the next 10 years. And those things um, are going to be like my goals. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on experience because I want to learn. I want to learn how to do my job well. I'm going to really focus on uh, relationships because if you change a job or if you move on from a company or if you, it, 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 you, you go into something else, they, you can't, they can't take your experience and your relationships. Um, and then the other thing I decided to, to really focus on was a good reputation. You know, so it was experience, reputation, and relationships. Um, uh, those are three things that will go with you. Uh, it wasn't money. I remember when I first started, I made a lot less money than a lot of guys that were my friends or my contemporaries or people that went from gig to gig. And I used to think, man, maybe, maybe I got this wrong. Maybe I focused on the wrong thing, but you know, looking back on the last 11 years, I don't regret that. 
my focus was on experience, relationships, and reputation. And you know what? Those things go with you. Uh, if you have a good name, is rather to be chosen than great riches, the Bible says. And I think that's so key, you know, to everything. Because uh, that, because more like, because, because investors will want to work with you. People want to hire you. Uh, crews will want to work under you. Uh, people will want to work for you or with you uh, when you have a good reputation. You know, um, uh, how you deal with relationships, you know, uh, is key. That also affects your reputations. It also affects how you, uh, um, you know, I believe that, you know, if you have a lot of relationships, you have a lot of options, you know, and you have a lot of connections. You know, I always think of a problem through people. That's always been my approach. And then uh, the experience of, of doing the work. So if you have that kind of servant attitude going in, I think you'll be successful, you know, because you'll find something that may, might not be producing. You know, I didn't know if I, when I started out that it was going to be producing. I always tell people when they're like starting out, like if you have this idea of what you're going to do, why don't you just, why don't you just try stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, try a bunch of stuff. It might not be producing. It might not be directing. It could be a, being a first AD. It's a very good job. And uh, you might be more gifted toward it. You might be a line producer. You might be more of a creative producer. You know, uh, you might be more skilled in the distribution and the marketing. There's a lot of jobs for people in film and entertainment. And uh, don't pigeonhole yourself into this expectation when you start out. Try a bunch of stuff. Uh, maybe you're you're better at something than that you didn't think you were. And ultimately, um, you know, uh, Mark Cuban said it: follow your your effort not necessarily your, uh, you know, what you want to do in life. Don't follow your dreams, follow your efforts, which is a roundabout way of saying that, you know, and he said, he explains it. If you're good at something, you'll enjoy it and you'll be passionate about it. And so you got to figure out what that is. So don't just try to say like, I'm not doing right. Cause I'm not a producer. I'm not acting like a producer. It's just serve well, do a bunch of jobs and you'll probably figure out what it is you're actually good at when you start doing it, <laughs> you know? That'd be my yeah. Answer. All right. No, that's that's really good. Well, thank you very much for coming on to talk with us today. Hey, I wish I would have had your idea early on in life and just started asking people questions. And if, I don't know if podcasts were as popular when I started out, but that would have been a great way to to just pick people's brain. That'd be my last piece of advice. I'll just throw it in there. Just get mentored. Like seek out mentorship. You'd be surprised how many people really want to pour back into the next generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always been my secret weapon. Just listen, go places, ask good questions, do what you're doing right now with people. Um, and you'll learn so much and you'll get relationships out of it. So there you go. <laughs> that one's for free. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Until next time, make sure to subscribe to the producer podcast and thanks for listening.